So I know, oh god, rape culture, here we go, set off the alarm. Radio Drome. Welcome as we travel back in time to 1987 on Radio Drome. I am Josh Hadley. With me, almost as always, is Cecil was only a zygote at the time, Trachtenberg? Uh, zygote. That's it? Look, dude, that's been a long day. Peter won't be joining us tonight, and he has a valid excuse. It's his girlfriend's birthday the night we're recording this, so valid excuse, fine. If you guys want to go to adamandeve.com, there's something new now, Cecil. Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E. You will get 50% off of a single item, a free sex swing, free U.S. shipping. Get a sex swing, guys. adamandeve.com, promo code DROME. They always look... How do you not break your junk with this thing? No pun intended. I've never had the balls to try one of those. No, I, I never would either. They uh, they don't... I, I don't I don't need the, the extra help. I'm, I'm just dandy going it <laughs> on natural. Let's talk about 1987. We haven't done one of these year-in-review things in, in a while. 1987. I already know what your pick is going to be, but tell people anyway what movie jumps out for you. Here is 1987. A movie comes along that is one of the most influential, talked about films of all time. It's still referenced, and people like uh, always think back to it. Leonard Part Six. Ah, the Razzie Award-winning <laughs> Leonard Part Six. <laughs> and uh, nah, I just had to throw that out there. Of course, RoboCop. How can like 87? That was it jumped out at me before I even had to look up 87 to be reminded what else came out in 87. But uh, yeah, RoboCop, insanely revolutionary film, just awesome. Still stands up today and is uh, one of my all-time favorite films. And see, in 1987, there was there was a weird shift going on in the movie industry. Prior to this. You had sci-fi and horror still kind of being relegated to, you know, that dirty little secret, even though all the sci-fi and horror movies are generally... I mean, how many of these year retrospectives have we gone over where the top ten is like eight genre films? Now genre was starting to both get higher profile at the same time as being looked more down upon. Now you had sequelitis starting to come in. You had more crass kind of movies. And horror and sci-fi were kind of on the outs in a weird way. Yes, you had exceptions like Robocop and all that. When you look at hits, as in making money, very, very few genre titles were hits in 1987. So let's save those. Let's look at some of the non-genre titles that 87 gave us. They gave us Adventures in Babysitting, a movie I thought was a way better idea than it was a film. Oh, come now. That's a fun movie. The funnest part of that movie is Elizabeth Shue getting dressed at the beginning. It is very cute. And uh, and any teenage boy would uh, immediately fall in love with her at that. She just was so adorable when she was doing that. And her boyfriend uh, was such a jerk. 
Oh, he was such a jerkwad. I I forgot about that that you were gonna min- that you mentioned that. I thought you were gonna say usually what everybody says is the the whole thing with Thor, which um Vincent D'Onofrio is Vincent D'Onofrio Vincent D'Onofrio as the uh was he a mechanic? Yeah, he was a mechanic who looked like Thor and like when he still had he had this big like long locks of blonde hair. <laughs> he wasn't chubby yet. Yeah, he's all muscular and stuff and that yeah, it wasn't too much too much longer after that was uh but well, he's always been a little chubby. That's why it's always fun. Funny when you when you see him in a role where it's like, hey, I recognize that guy. He's kind of muscular. He looks like Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh my God, it is Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> no, this is technically a genre film, but not really. It's more of a comedy than anything. I adore Amazon Women on the Moon. I know it flopped hard at the box office, but how can you not love Amazon Women on the Moon? Yeah, well, I think by name only. It was never going to be a, a massive hit. It was always going to be a, a very cult film. Because how can you sell that to an audience? Hey, what are we going to go see? Amazon Women on the Moon. What? Also at this, also at this point, anthology films were almost death at the box office. Mm-hmm. Very, very few anthology films worked financially. Well, anthology films are a tough sell. That's why the most of them usually any any more end up going uh, direct video. Even really high quality ones like Trick or Treat, like the studio just you had you had a really good budget, you had a great cast, and the studio's like, oh, we don't know what to do with this, and then they release it on home video and ends up being like a monumental hit. So I think a lot of it also pairs into just uh, studio, you know, typical studio stupidity. Well, we still had Charles Bronson basically playing Charles Bronson as he does in every 80s film. Cannon's assassination. The president might be trying to assassinate the first lady. Is it really an assassination? Like, wouldn't it just be regular old murder? I, honestly, I haven't seen the movie in 20 years. I The only thing I remember is uh, him falling in love with the bitch of a uh, first lady. Ah, uh, see, I, I honestly don't even think I've seen this one. Always go back to either Death Wish or uh, Kinjite, the forbidden subjects. We had Canon also trying to go, you know what? We're real filmmakers, too. The Oscar-winning Barfly also came out in 1987. Barfly's a goddamn good movie. But it really doesn't feel like a canon film, does it? No, it certainly does not feel like a canon movie. But I guess it's kind of showing the uh, the depth and uh, diversity of what they can do, because they also did Masters of the Universe. Uh, we'll get that. I said leave genre out for right now. Oh, all right. How about, uh, is is Ernest Goes to Camp, uh, genre? No, Ernest Goes to Camp is on my list, though. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, you know what? I saw that movie in the theater. I really enjoyed that movie as a kid, and even watching it as an adult, I can still see how I enjoyed it as a kid. It, it talks down to you a little bit, but really, it's a lot smarter than it has any right to be. And a lot um, smarter than all the later Ernest movies, too. Well, I think uh, I, I have a soft spot for the Ernest movies. And I think uh, what you're saying about how it being more smart than uh, people kind of realize how is that because Jim Varney is a really intelligent guy, he was doing Shakespeare before he was doing Ernest P. Worrell. And that was kind of, you know, he went where the you know, follow the money. So he went with that. But uh, there was always there's always a, like a little bit of. The, you know that that underlying hey this isn't quite as stupid as uh, you would think it is uh, whereas a lot of other things like the uh, the redneck comedy stuff like that's really as stupid as it's supposed to be but th- there's just I mean for lack of a better term there's a certain earnestness 
<laughs> to the earnest movies. You know, I, I don't know. I've always, uh, I've always liked them. And that ended up being a sleeper hit. It cost like very little. Oh, that it, was a huge hit. Mm-hmm. And it made a, a pretty decent amount of money. And I mean, consequently, they wouldn't have made like eight more earnest movies. No, well, then they, 1997 also released. Now, this film is a sequel. I love the first movie. I never got around to seeing A Better Tomorrow 2 from John Woo. Is that one as good as the first film? You know what? I've never seen the sequel to that either. I've, I've missed a few John Woo movies here and there, and uh, that's well, one. A Better Tomorrow is fantastic. I just, oh, yeah. for some reason, never got around to part two. I've done that myself, where it's just like, oh, I love this movie. There's a sequel, and then I just, I'm like, crap, 20 years later, oh, I still haven't seen this. What the hell? Speaking of an amazing sequel, and I don't want to talk too much about this, because later this summer I want to do a Beverly Hills Cop retrospective. Beverly Hills Cop 2, almost like it better than Beverly Hills Cop. Nah, I went back uh, a few years ago and watched uh, 1 and 2. I just skipped 3. Uh, that, that's but... wise choice. Oh, certainly wise choice. And while two has good elements to it, it's having, far better directed. It's better directed. What's her name? Uh, Brigitte Nielsen. Brigitte Nielsen does make for a good, like, su- I think he called her like super bitch or something. Like she made for a good, like Russian assassin female and, and femme fatale back when, before she hit the wall. And, but I don't know, like there's a certain something about the first one that just works. It feels like the second one, they were kind of aping a lot of stuff from the first one and just redoing it. And it's still good. Uh, it has a really, like, a lot of good action sequences. And uh, Eddie Murphy was just on point. Like, his humor was there. And the... Uh, like, John Austin actually stole scenes from him. There was a lot of that going on. Uh, but I just, I still think that the first one is the uh, is the best of the series. Well, then you had, like, the Bruce Willis stinker blind date. Wow, what a piece of crap that was. You had the Cheech Marin, I see why Tommy Chong left you, born in East L.A., which was great for the four-minute, you know, video novelty song. Absolutely tedious as a f***ing 90-minute movie. Then you had, like, Whoopi Goldberg's Burglar, which, again, far better idea than... It was a way better trailer than it was a movie. You got Patrick Dempsey and Can't Buy Me Love. It's oh, like, that's a great movie, though. That is I didn't such like a, that one. Oh, I love Can't Buy Me Love. I My sister took me to see that in the movie theater because uh, I really just... Oh, the, 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 the African rain dance and just... Uh, and I, I've always had a soft spot for that one. I really like that one. Oh, and 1987 also gave us the original Reservoir Dogs, City on Fire with Chow Yun-Fat came out in 1987. How about uh, From the Hip from uh, Bob Clark? Another Razzie Award winner. Oh, but it's such an underappreciated movie. It's really good. It's the, way smarter the than it gets first credit for. half is. Because, okay, I don't know if this was all David E. Kelly's script or not. There is a there is a tonal whiplash. The first half of the movie is a straight-up, almost slapstick comedy. Then, they, then the law firm gets the John Hurt case, and it's almost... Now we're a murder thriller, and there's no comedy in the second half, and it becomes a hard, dirty thriller. And it's like, uh, there's some tonal whiplash here, guys. See, but I don't mind that. Like, if it, if the, the story and the script is strong enough to kind of pull you through that, I am, I'm good with that. And I really liked it. Cause yeah, it is like silly, and then it, it does get very serious, but very I thought it was- Very dark, too. 
very, very dark, which it was unexpected. And I don't know. I appreciated it. I always thought that it was a good movie that uh, never really got like the credit that it deserved. You brought up Charles Bronson earlier. We also have Death Wish Four: The Crackdown. Is that the one with the where, with the rocket launcher? With the rocket launcher, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are two movies, two non-genre films that just absolutely entered pop culture in 1987, and I hate both of them. The first one would be Dirty Dancing. I hate this film. Hate it. I I don't hate it. I just don't care. It's, I had a friend of mine, his wife, well, at the time, girlfriend, now his wife, but she was big on Dirty Dancing, and she'd always play the freaking songs, oh, nobody puts baby in the corner. I think that kind of just made me disgusted with it. I never thought it was all of that great anyway. I do, like, and I like Patrick Swayze a lot, so it's no discounting him in the movie. Uh It's just something that I really don't. I don't care. I mean, it's it, it's not a movie that a lot of guys really like, and that's kind of the the the, the thing behind it is like I don't uh, I don't care. It's a but it's not aimed at people like me. It's aimed at people like my buddy's uh, wife. The other one that entered pop culture was I won't be ignored. Ah, boil the bunny. Yes, fatal attraction. Mm-hmm. It was uh, I, it was good. Better, you know what? Um, you know what? I, I heard a story. Now, obviously, I was too young at the time to have been thinking like this. I heard a story that that movie made a lot of guys think twice about having an affair. Oh, I'm sure. Because the other thing too is they like he tried to get away from her, and she really moved, like just moved in on him and really screwed things over. And I think that uh, I mean, you know what the original ending was. Like where she killed herself, but made it look like he did it. So then he ended up like the whole, I think like the third act of the movie turned into like a, a crime drama where he ended up going to jail for her murder. <laughs> like really, you know, not getting, and they, they decided, well, we don't want to do that. We want to kind of have it so that the husband and wife get back together and they fight her off because she's really crazy. And, but, uh, yeah, that, uh, it was, it was good at the time. It's a movie that I don't really think holds up quite as well. So it was a big deal. I mean, it was a huge movie back then. Well, and then you had a movie I love. You have Dan Aykroyd's Dragnet, which I've talked about numerous times, which is actually not a remake. It's an actual sequel to the old show. And then you have, this was starting the era where a stand-up comedy special could be theatrical. Eddie Murphy just killing it with Raw. Oh, yeah. Raw was phenomenal. Raw was just a, a sensation. Like, you had to go see Raw, and uh, I uh, I couldn't, obviously. I see, I saw it years later on, on video. I think my, I'm pretty sure my sister went to see it. Hilarious. Still funny. Like, a lot of those old, like, Raw and Delirious. It's and... really un-PC, though. Oh, Some of those my. jokes would never fly today, man. No, absolutely they would not fly today. And the thing that's depressing is... That doesn't they... mean they're not, it doesn't mean the jokes aren't funny. It just means you could never get away with them. No, well, just recently, uh, Chappelle put out his things. Uh, he put out the, the two Netflix specials. He made some transvestite jokes. And they're all, oh, how, how dare you? And it's like, jokes! They're jokes, people. Like, stop. Like, you learn. know what? I, I, one of my favorite gags from the all of Raw is where the fag police are coming to get him. And they <laughs> woo, 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 woo. And he goes, it's not even a siren. It's just a fag on the hood going, woo, 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 woo. 
hilarious. Pull over. Pull out and he's, what is this? What is it? And he grabs this chunk. Yeah, it's like, I'm sorry. That's funny. Yeah, and, and Mr. T f***ing him in the ass? That's flex, funny! I'll flex, flex my butt cheeks, rip your dick off. Cheeks and rip your off. But yeah, like Raw and Delirious, like those are hilarious. And uh, we really, uh, I would go so far as to say, like Raw was probably like the biggest, co- you know, in theater, co- you know, concert comedy movie. Like there really wasn't another one that I can even, uh, maybe Dice Rules. But I don't think Dice Rules made, like, quite as much of an impact. I mean, and I love Andrew Dice Rules. Dice Rules would still be a couple of years away. We'll we'll talk about that down the line. Right, but what I'm saying is that I don't think that there ever was another uh, comedy concert video that was anywhere near the level of Raw. Richard Pryor live on the Sunset Strip, maybe. Because back then, when when Pryor put his thing out, that was still back when they were putting, you know, move, moving things. All right, well, we're going to be in New York for a week, and then we're going to be, you know, so they they weren't having the wide opening like uh, like Raw did. We also have Full Metal Jacket this year. I guess was filmed either. I, I, once think, I think Full Metal Jacket was shot after. first. Yeah, because Full Metal Jacket was a long shoot. It's a Kubrick movie. How is it not? That's what I'm saying. It was a long shoot. Ugh, the Glass Menagerie, the Paul Newman one, boring as f*** all. You have Good Morning Vietnam, Hamburger Hill, Harry and the Hendersons, just, I I never liked that movie, but fine. You had the very underrated Hiding Out with John Cryer, where he went back to high school. That's, I love Hiding Out. Yeah, where he, he dyes his hair and, and he goes back to, to high school. I mean, that was, started the trend of that, where there was the, uh, you know, either a reporter would go back to high school or, uh, but yeah, Hiding Out was great. And Hiding Out's actually, like, a lot darker, because he's trying to avoid being murdered. Yeah, yeah, so he's he, he, he screwed out. over the, mo- he, he was gonna testify against the mob, so they're trying to literally kill him. But it also gets into that creepy territory we didn't think of in 1987 when he's trying to bang the one girl in school and you're like, dude, you know you're 30, right? Yeah, it's, you don't really, you weren't really thinking because it was like, oh, they both look, you know, like they're young. So, and then it's like, oh, wait, he's, <laughs> he's 30 and has like a career and she's in high school. Yeah. Um, you, you also have, no, I haven't seen this movie in 20 plus years, but I remember the very innovative Hollywood shuffle. And then we have, if Leonard Park Six hadn't come along, I think Ishtar would have been the, what the hell were you thinking movie of the year? I think that Ishtar is more often remembered as like, you know, it was one of the many times referenced as just worst movie of all time, you know, Ishtar, uh, more so than Leonard Part Six. I think the difference being is that more people probably saw Ishtar than saw Leonard Part Six. I think me and like maybe two other people saw Leonard Part Six. Bill Cosby was telling people, don't see this movie. But then we also have Jaws the Revenge. We have La Bamba. We have Less Than Zero. And the film that arguably made Mel Gibson a star. I mean, I'm not discounting Road Warrior in that, but Lethal Weapon is this year, too. Yeah, Lethal Weapon is the movie that really did put him on the map. I mean, we had him since Mad Max and Road Warrior and all that, but definitely, like, I never really even heard of him until uh, my sister put a, again, back to my, I think this was my sister this year, but she put a, you know, Mel Gibson poster up uh, with with his, like, mall hair. Uh, he he yeah. did kind of have a mullet going there. He did, well, you know what? A lot of people did back then. It was the style at the time. Put an onion on your belt. Put an onion on your belt. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. 
surprisingly dark comedy movie, Light of Day with Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett. You have the idiotic Dudley Moore, Kirk Cameron body swap movie, Like Father, Like Son. And I, I'm weird on The Lost Boys. I like the style of it. I think it's very well directed. I absolutely hate the screenplay. Oh, them's fighting words. Lost Boys is great. What's wrong I'm with sorry, you? It's a really stupid movie. It's just, it looks fantastic. The production design, the cinematography are amazing. It's just a dumb script. No, it's, what's wrong? Ugh, stop it. Lost Boys is fantastic. Lost Boys, I dare I say, Lost Boys is one of, if not one of, one of the best, if not the best modern vampire movie. Cause they took a lot of. No, like, that would be near dark, which is the same year here. Uh, okay. All right. Well, I would say it is, uh, then I'll put it into the one of the best modern vampire movies where they took a lot of concepts of vampires and sort of melted them in and just made it back when vampires were still like sexy, but scary. And, uh, it just, the, the look of them and the whole concept of them just all hanging out, uh, you know, being like forever teenagers. So does it's, I don't know. I've always loved Lost Boys. Such a great movie. Dare you well, say it's stupid. What's wrong with you? Well, and then we also had the original Man on Fire. A lot of people don't realize that the, that the very, very good Denzel Washington movie is actually a remake of the Man on Fire movie starring Scott Glenn. And then we have Mannequin, one of the uh, dumbest films I've ever seen. And of course you're going to say you like it. Of course I like it. It's It was made in Philly. It's, it's, it's one of those, like, staple movies from around here. How could you not like Mannequin? Mannequin, you know, uh, with Starship on the soundtrack, and, uh, I don't know, I have a major soft spot for Mannequin. Nowhere, nowhere to hide. The movie where Michael Ironside is a crazed hillbilly defending his sister against the mob. That's always awesome. The also Raz, multiple Razzie Award winning Over the Top, starring Stallone, directed by Golan himself. It's not, I, I don't think that's worthy of a Razzie. It's, but I mean, oh God, you put, how many people like when they're going to arm wrestle, they don't put their hat on backwards. Everybody loves over the top. Um, we got the pickup artist, plane trains and automobiles, the princess bride, which I did see in the theater and I do like the movie. I just never understood the massive, massive cult following it somehow got. It's a good movie. I just don't think it's this massive cult movie. I saw it recently at a packed house with Carrie Always. It was like a special evening event with uh, Princess Bride. And then afterwards, uh, Carrie Always had like a Q&A session. And he was there to sign his book, which was called uh, As You Wish. It was all about the filming of Princess Bride. And he was awesome. He gave so many like funny stories. And the audience just loved it. Uh, it just, uh, it, it reminded, for me, that reminded me of why this was, a, you know, a very strong cult movie. People People love the movie, and it didn't do well at all theatrically, but it, it's grown such an audience over the years. There were, like, parents there with their kids, and the kids loved it, and uh, I loved it. Uh, me, and, uh, me and my wife had a great time there, and uh, I don't know. I think that uh, it, it is a movie that deserves its status. Well, one movie that is shockingly overlooked is Coen Brothers' Raising Arizona which I think is one of the most unique comedies of the 80s. And first of all, and I'm not insulting the Coens here, because remember, they started their career working under Sam Raimi. You watch Raising Arizona after I say they were trying to direct this like Raimi would have directed it. It really comes across as just so different visually, doesn't it? 
it's a, it's a very bizarre film, and I think that's what puts a lot of people off. It was like they didn't quite know, like, what kind of movie is this? What? Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter are fantastic in this, but John Goodman and William Forsythe steal this freaking movie from them. And then we got Revenge of the Nerds 2. You know what? I actually liked Revenge of the Nerds 2. The only thing I didn't like it was that this started the decline. Like, we had, the first one was rated PG-13. R. PG-13. This was PG-13. The next one was PG, and the next one was uh, television. And it was just like, they, they, it was a pretty hard art, too. I mean, they, they showed Vag. And then the second one. And our heroes one, are rapists in the first film. And the heroes are rapists. I mean, again, really. Okay, in 1984, again, we didn't consider that sexual assault, but it is now. Eh, she, she liked it after the fact. Like, I guess. That's some rape was, apologist fucking talk right there, man. That's so, I know, oh god, rape culture, here we go, set off the alarm. She, you know, she, um, she thought it was the, the jock, even though he obviously did not have the same build as a jock, but whatever. So. Clearly he <laughs> yeah, had better talents. He certainly did. He, well, he apparently knew what he was doing, evidently. Well, that was the whole, you know, jocks only think about sports, all nerds think about is sex. So, uh, you know, she left him to, to go with the nerd. Eh, I mean, I kind of chalk it up to like Porky's. In the context of the film and what's going on, it's, it's meant to be funny. It's not meant to be taken, uh, so seriously. I think that's one of the problems why people don't have a sense of humor anymore. They don't but look at things textually. One of the things that bothers me about Revenge of the Nerds 2 is Revenge of the Nerds 3. Because in Revenge of the Nerds 3, Lewis is still is is married to Betty and mentions they've been together this whole time. So when he was trying to get with Courtney Thorne Smith in 2, was he cheating on Betty? Uh-oh. That, that You know, in retrospect, 3 kind of went, made 2 creepier. Hotel Coral Essex. Hot oral sex. Hot oral sex, there you go. <laughs> Hot oral sex. I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> and you know what? Speaking of comedies that show their love for the genre, Carl Reiner's Summer School was 1987. You tell me, knowing your tastes and mine, that Chainsaw and Dave were not amazing in that. Oh, they were, like, I identify with them still. I want Chainsaw's bedroom. Yeah, just all the props all over the place. Just, yeah, just, just awesome. I, I'm a big fan of I'm a big fan of Summer School too. Like that uh, that movie is uh, very much a piece of uh, '80s, like right there. And Kirstie Alley, uh, pre-Cheers, Kirstie Alley. Sh- Shawnee Smith is the pregnant chick. Shawnee Smith is the pregnant chick, but yeah, Courtney Thorne Smith and uh, you know, Sean, like just a lot of people like before they really became you know uh, took off uh, elsewhere. Teen Wolf 2, a totally unnecessary movie. We had, which I'll get to later, the biggest box office film of the year, Three Men and a Baby by, by Leonard freaking Nimoy. We had Brian De Palma's Untouchables. Wow, this movie was a better idea than it was a film, Walk Like a Man from Howie Mandel. We had Wall oh, yeah. Street from Oliver Stone. And the kick-ass Rudger Hauer wanted dead or alive where Gene Simmons dies the most amazing death. It is... It is one of the greatest moments ever. Like, I remember, like, I remember enjoying the movie. I'm like, this is really great. Now let's look at the sci-fi films of the year. Let's get into the genre here. We've got Batteries Not Included. Weirdly enough, a movie that's a spinoff of the Amazing Stories TV series. Was it? Yeah, the, the, the script was originally written for Amazing Stories, and Spielberg loved it so much, he said, this needs to be a movie. Uh, I mean, I've always liked Batteries Not Included. I thought it, it's just, it's one of those movies that has a lot of charm to it. But and it really, after, after what I've just it, said, 
it really does feel like a feature-length Amazing Stories episode, doesn't it? Oh, now that you say it, totally. Yeah. The highly underrated Cherry 2000 with Melanie Griffith and her cute little Cupie Pie voice as this badass bounty hunter trying to dodge T- Tim Thomerson and then that amazing line after all of the action scenes. I think I swallowed my gum. Cherry 2000 is great. I, uh, I think, I, I, I think that was where I, I may have started my, my love affair of girls with really blatantly fake red hair. Cause that, like her hair was like, that, that is only available in a box. Like you cannot, no one is born with that color red hair. Weirdly enough, is Cherry 2000 strange in the fact that it predicted sex bots and stuff like this? Well, I think that inevitably stuff like that was like tricorders and all that Star Trek kind of predicted that. But with with the sex bots and all that, that just given enough time to figure out technology, people were going to wait to fuck it. You know, so, and they're, they're not quite there yet. You know, they, they don't quite have cherry just yet. Uh, I, I watched that documentary talking? as well. Yes. A very, very early role for Lawrence Fishburne as a sex lawyer. Yes. And uh, I just I did like the fact that once he got to the place and he got her new uh he, he got the new body and he put the chip in and he was kind of like, oh, she really sucks. <laughs> She's not she she you know, now that I've been with like a real woman for a while, I, I don't want to be around this uh, this this phony. And so it's a uh, it's it's good. I've always had a I've always like I mean, it's a post apocalyptic movie. Of course, I'm going to like it. And then you have Creepazoids from David Dakota from back when he was really trying. And you have a film I forgot was an H.P. Lovecraft movie. You have The Curse based on Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space. For the longest time, I forgot, wait a minute, that is a freaking Lovecraft movie, isn't it? Did not know for the longest time, too. And I found out when I did my video on it a few years ago, I was like, oh, I had no idea. And it's it's a very... I prefer the second one, the bite with the uh, with the snakes, but uh, I do think that the, the first one, uh, it's it's good in its own way. Jack Shoulder's fantastic, The Hidden, which I think is one of the best films of this year. I, I know how weird that sounds, but I think The Hidden is such a fantastic movie. I think Kyle MacLaughlin is is just amazing in it. I think Michael Nori is great in it. Claudia Christian's even good in her role. You know, you, you get to see Danny Trejo blown up with a rocket launcher. The whole movie is is just incredible. Like it's such a great idea, and it just it's such a fun movie. Jack Shoulder, he did the commentary for it on the DVD. There's a part where the old guy is in the the Ferrari Ferrari, and it runs over a guy in a wheelchair, and he's talking about something, and he's like, "So when we were shooting this, and he runs over the guy in the in the wheelchair, and he goes." <laughs> so great because it's just one of those like unscripted like oh and then he's like oh but we 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 couldn't do something like that today <laughs> like but no you could not but he, he, him just pausing to laugh wonderful so yeah the hidden only to be completely depressed by oh how... don't even bring up hidden two. Oh, i was so sad with it that movie two. is so bad Oh, I, I was, uh, believe me, I love the first one and I was so excited. I'm like, oh my God, they made a sequel. Yes, I love this movie. It's going to be great. It's got Kate Hodge in it. Oh, what the hell did they do? Well, I, I would say even the same thing about Inner Space from Joe Dante. I love Joe Dante, but man, did this movie, I know he was going for that like 50s kind of fun, fantastic voyage feel. Nothing in Inner Space worked for me. I mean, maybe the whole Martin Short thing is what threw me off because 
Martin Short's just not funny in this movie. Oh, pish posh. Inner space is terrific. What's wrong with you? Then we go on to the film that most of the cast wishes they could forget, Masters of the Universe, which is technically the last canon film, and technically it's not because they released some others a couple of years later that they had sitting around. But Masters of the Universe was the final nail in canon's coffin. Kind of needed to be. My problem with Masters of the Universe is it looks amazing. The production design, the style, man, it has nothing to do with the freaking source material. Nothing at all. Well, they went with the the fish out of water, and that uh, is just, uh, it always bugs me. All the scenes on Eternia work. Dolph Lundgren's not so bad, but there were two moments of perfect casting. Frank Langella as Skeletor and Meg Foster as Evil Lynn. Mm-hmm. That was perfect casting on both parts. Yeah, and Frank Langella, the reason he did it was because I think his, it was either his son or his nephew or somebody was like a big He-Man fan and was like, you're going to be Skeletor. He's like, all right, I guess I'm going to be Skeletor. You know, that's the same reason he did, he did Deep Space Nine in season two, that three episode arc. He did that for his grandchildren because they were big Star Trek fans. You know what? Weird. It's got to be nice to have that ability. And then 1987 brought us the underrated, and everyone forgets is George R. R. Martin now that he's a huge name. The Night Flyers, a movie that again was a way better idea than it was a film. Oh, night. Oh, the 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 one with the dude whose head splits open. Yeah, with uh with Lisa Blount and Catherine Mary Stewart. Catherine Mary Stewart. Uh, Catherine Mary Stewart stole the show. The the problem with Night Flyers... This is not a good movie, though. Oh, Night Flyers is a good movie. But the problem with Night Flyers was... Now, I am very rusty on this because it's been a while since I was looking into it because I'm still waiting for the uh, for it to come out on some sort of widescreen remastered print because it's only on VHS full frame. The About halfway through filming, I think like two major producers pulled out so they had to finish the film with like what little money they had left, and so they had to do like Man, a does lot it feel of like it too. Because that's why, like, when you're watching in the beginning, like, there's a lot of production, and then later, when you would expect there to be more production, it's just kind of stuff that they had already built and uh, a lot of um, like not good effects. It's still I I enjoy it for what it wants to be. But I recognize that it just it didn't have the money to be able to be completed. That's a movie that I would not mind if it was remade uh, with the original script in mind, although it probably would get compared to like Event Horizon stuff if it came out now. Predator the or or the the, the title it was filmed under Alien Hunter. <laughs> God, that movie dodged so many bullets from the bad name to the giant pink bug that uh, was was the original design. With Jean-Claude Van Damme. With Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, uh, yeah, Predator is an accidental classic. It really is. There were so many things that just were going wrong with this. I mean, thankfully, the director, he flew back with, um, I, I believe it was uh, Jim Cameron. Uh, Stan Winston were on the plane with him and he was like, oh, I'm doing this movie. I, I need this alien. And like Stan Winston, like drew on like a napkin, what the predator's head looked like. And Cameron was like, oh yeah. And he's like, and he took it and drew like the mouth for it. And it was like, yeah, you should make it look like that. And then he went back to the studio and was like, Hey, uh, this pink bug really sucks. Why don't we do this? And they were like, okay, that's so much better. And then the dreadlocked alien man. Yeah. You Jamaican me crazy. But then this year also brought us Robocop, which we did a whole retrospective on. So I'll just glance over that. Also brought us the running man, which, okay. I love the not Stephen King, but totally Stephen King short story, The Running Man. 
and the movie I love as well. But to me, these things have almost nothing in common with one another. The movie, in its essence, is a horrible adaptation of the book. But I love the movie for what it is. It's a horrible adaptation of the book, but a fantastic movie. Who loves you? And who do you love? Ar- like, everybody in there was great. Frickin', oh, God. I mean, you had Arnold. You had Jesse the Body Ventura. You had uh, Professor Sub-Zero. <laughs> now, Plane Zero! Richard uh, Dawson surprisingly kicking ass in that film. Richard Dawson being evil. I just love when he, like, yeah, just so bad. Yeah, just, oh, such a great movie. Love Running Man. Well, then then you have Spaceballs, a movie that I loved at the time. I watched it again a couple of years ago, and I went, oh, this is so not funny. How could you not like Spaceballs? What's wrong with you? Love Spaceballs. It's still funny. Everything about it is funny. We we have the, for once, a film that actually lived up to its title, Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. It's got some really good production value for a direct-to-video, full-moon-type movie. I really loved Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Well, yeah, it's got Elizabeth Caton in it. What's not like, what's there not to love? Brink that Stevens, was good. I'm like, too. Well, I like Brink Stevens, but I love Elizabeth Caton. Like, I, I was like, oh, this movie, you know, like, I, I think I found her in, um... Attack of the Killer Bimbos? Kill- Assault of the Killer, Assault, Assault, was it Assault of the Killer Bimbos? Yeah, I, yeah. I saw her in, no, Friday the 13th Part 7, and then Assault of the Killer Bimbos, and I was like, okay, I'm in love with this girl. And, uh, yeah, I saw that, and, uh, it's, it is, uh, it's essentially the most dangerous game, just with sorority clad girls. women and robots and rape. Scantily clad women and robots, and, uh, well, was the, I don't remember there being rape. It was implied rape. Alright, implied rape. Well, it's, it's a, 87 was a very rapey year. But then 87 also brought us Patrick Swayze with a mullet swinging a sword in the desert with Steel Dawn. That was excellent. See, that was the movie where I'm like, look, you can have your Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing. I want the Patrick Swayze in Steel Dawn. And then we round out the sci-fi with Superman, the quest for an audience. Yeah, I think by that point, it just had run its course. And and how weird is it to go from... The first Superman, a huge movie, just this massive hit, gigantic, well-produced, incredible movie, and then finally going out as a canon film. Not even a good canon film. Not even a good canon film. A very, very cheesy canon film. It's uh, very sad. that I think that there are... I don't hate Superman 4. I think that there are good parts to it. But it's just, um, it is kind of a mess, especially when you go back and you watch Superman 1 and 2, and even 3. Richard Pryor was good, and that, when that lady turns into a robot, that terrified me. That scared the hell out of me as a kid. Speaking of scary, let's go to the horror movies. We start off with the unfortunately titled Alien Predator, the Dennis Christopher movie. Yeah, that was a Spanish-U.S. production. No one saw that. You have the strange... I didn't personally like Angel Heart, but, you know, the Mickey Rourke, Robert De Niro, Lisa Bonet film, you had Peter Jackson's Bad Taste come out, and I know you love Blood Diner. Oh, hell yeah. Little Jimmy Hitler. Jackie Kong. Jackie Kong, who I've I've actually talked to, like, uh, about it. Uh, when uh, she took my, my video and showed it at the, uh, they had a premiere party for it. I was very honored. I was, uh, so yeah, hell yeah, Blood Diner. Well, and then we have Creepshow 2, which we've gone into great detail about. The Curse. Thanks for we the have, ride, lady. We have Evil Dead 2, which 
I know I'm committing cinematic horror film blasphemy here. I think it's way better than Army of Darkness or Evil Dead. I'm sorry, people. Evil Dead 2 is the far better film. I don't, I think a lot of people would agree with you. That's one where I, I'll watch one, I'll be like, yeah, this is better. And then I watch two, and I'm like, yeah, this is better. Then I watch Army of Darkness, I'm like, yeah, this is better. So I, I'm torn. They're, they're all good in such different ways. You got Ghoulies 2. You have Hell High, which, as Joe Bob Briggs accurately put it, it's not a bad film, but it came out about three years after it should have. It came out three years earlier, it might be more fondly remembered than in 1987, they were still making slasher movies. You have the Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Michael Ironside as an evil principal. Okay. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember liking it. Clive Barker's, I'm going to call it his debut feature, Hellraiser, which I watched Hellraiser 1 and 2 again maybe a month and a half ago. I used to think Hellraiser 2 was the better film. Now I actually think Hellraiser is the better film. I'm I'm kind of weird in that regard. I still think 2 is the better film. And I like Hellraiser 1 a lot, but uh I, Hellraiser 2 just did so much more to expand like the lore and this you know, of everything. Well, we've got House 2 the second story, which we've gone into detail before. Howling 3, which we've gone into detail before. It's Alive 3. We should we'll probably do an It's Alive retrospective at some point. I remember It's Alive 3 being not good. Was that Island of the Alive? That was the island, yeah. It's been a long time. I just remember there were the two twins in it, and they made a big deal about them being in it. But yeah, I, I, it's been way too long since I've seen it. And then we have an under, one of the classics, Fred Decker's The Monster Squad. Amazing film. Monster Squad, it fell into that weird area of being too graphic for children too childlike, and I mean that in a good way, for adults, to the point where no one cared in 1987 about Monster Squad, but people like us. Well, it has long since found its audience, and uh, people have recognized it for the brilliance that it is. It's, uh, you know, Shane Black wrote it, so it's got that just razor-sharp wit. Again, another quotable film, you know, Wolfman's got nards! I love Monster Squad. I love it dearly. Well, and, and Monster Squad also, as we pointed out when we talked to Fred Decker, has that one moment in it. Feels out of place, but isn't. The, the kids are like, they're talking to scary German guy, and they're like, do you know about monsters? And the camera not so subtly pans down to his concentration camp tattoo, and he goes, oh, I know about monsters. And you're like, wow, that got dark. Yeah, little his kids' movie. They're fighting Dracula in the mo oh, in concentration camp Nazis. Oh my god! Like, yeah, it's uh, it definitely does go in a, in it. But I mean, I think that that was that was the point though. Was like you know it, it, there are monsters. You know there have been real monsters, and uh, I, it's it, it's weird, but it's effective and it works. Well, and then we have Near Dark, which you and I were arguing about before. I think it, which is a far far superior film to the Lost Boys. I think it's more serious. When it does have humor, it works better. I think Near Dark is arguably the greatest vampire film ever made. I think Near Dark is is definitely you know, one of, if not the best, vampire movie. It's awesome. Then you have, and you and I might argue about this, the best Nightmare on Elm Street film, Dream Warriors, came out this year. Uh, I think Dream Warriors is hands down the most creative, the most energetic, and the most visually distinct of all of the Nightmare films. Love Dream Warriors. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Three is, uh, I did a video with Peter a while ago where he was talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and uh, I said, you know, three is by far my favorite. Arguably might be John Carpenter's finest film. 
got Prince of Darkness in 87. I still think that that ending and the whole dream from the year 1999 is still one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. I've got a message for you, and you're not going to like it. So creepy. And even Carpenter is like, I, look, we didn't really entirely know what we were doing. <laughs> we just knew we were onto something. And that just makes it creepier. Like, it, it's, uh, that, that it's not entirely explained. And, uh, yeah, Prince of Darkness is incredibly creepy. I love Larry Cohen, and I have not seen the movie since 1988. I remember Return to Salem's Lot doing nothing but pissing me off. As a fan of the Stephen King novel, I remember Return to Salem's Lot was one of those middle fingers, hey, boy, you liked Salem's Lot? Well, f*** you. Uh, I've never seen it. Like I said, I'm going off, you know, 30-plus year memories, but I remember hating this movie, just hating it as a teenager because of how much I loved the novel. You have Rock and Roll Nightmare. This year we have Silent at Deadly Night Part 2. And then we have Slumber Party Massacre 2. We have the very first Stepfather film where Terry O'Quinn just is amazing. You've got Street Trash. Yes. You have, you have Vicious Lips, which is more of a sci-fi movie. You have The Video Dead, which I like a lot, but it's kind of a better idea than it is a film. And then you have Zombie High with Virginia Madsen and Sherilyn Fenn. Let's go to the awards then for the year. The Academy Awards went to The Last Emperor for Best Picture. Eh. Mm. It went to Bernardo Bertolucci for The Last Emperor for Best Director. Eh. Best mm -hmm. Actor, Michael Douglas, Wall Street. Um, okay, that's not bad, but I think there were better. Best Actress, Cher for Moonstruck. No. No, I Be hated Moonstruck. Best Supporting Actor, Sean Connery, The Untouchables. Okay, I'll agree with that one. Oh, Sean he was, was pretty damn good in that. Really good in that. Supporting Actress, Olympia Dukakis, Moonstruck. No. No. But then we also have the Golden Raspberry Awards. <laughs> Worst Picture, Leonard Part 6. Boo! And then Ishtar and Jaws the Revenge tied for second place. It's been a long time since I've seen Ishtar, but uh, Jaws the Revenge... It, come on. The, the shark is roaring, and it it's just, I don't know. I, it is a great comedy. Worst actor, Bill Cosby, Leonard Part 6. Boo! They're obviously, yeah, I mean, I know these are the Razzies, but Bruce the Shark in Jaws the Revenge got second place. <laughs> and then, third place, Judd Nelson from The Hip. Boo! He was excellent in that. Like, uh stupid Razzies. Worst actress, Madonna, and who's that girl? Yes, that one I agree with. She was f***ing terrible. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, the only Madonna movie I ever liked was Desperately Seeking Susan. I really, really thoroughly enjoyed Desperately Seeking Susan. Every other movie she's been in, Dick Tracy, it's just she's always annoyed me. I've never liked any other Madonna movie. Worst screenplay, Leonard Part 6, Bill Cosby. Really Boo. is a bad movie, people. No, it, it's not, and I can't, I can't talk about it because Bill Cosby was a, a naughty boy. Because <laughs> Bill Cosby was a rapist. Bill Cosby again, was, bringing up was the rape a, again. Jesus. Yeah, really, it's been, well, yeah, well, years and years later, but, so, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't do a video on, uh, on Leonard Part 6, uh, you know, for many, you know, but it, had I done it a while ago, I probably would have had it, like, I'd have people jumping in there, because I, I made a comment on one of my videos talking about Bill Cosby, and this was years before the, the rape, uh, allegations, and people were like, you know he's a rapist, I'm like, nobody knew he was a, you know, except for maybe the, the people, except for the, the girls that he, the, you know, like, nobody knew four year four or five years ago, like, get off, you know, knock it off. 
in retrospect, would you say Bill Cosby movie is a sleeper hit? Oh, oh God. <laughs> That's terrible. Okay, for worst director, actually a tie. Norman Mailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance and Elaine May for Ishtar. Now, how come, like, was, uh, did Tough Guys Don't Dance get, like, nominations and just didn't win? Yeah, the Tough Guys Don't, uh, Tough, some other ones that got nominated quite often were Tough Guys Don't Dance got, like, five nominations, uh, Over the Top got seven, Jaws the Revenge got seven, so, yeah, there were, there were a lot of other ones that just were kind of lower down the, the echelon. Remember how I opened this episode saying this was the first year since Star Wars that basically where the genre, sci-fi and horror, did not take the top spots? There's only one genre flick in the top ten, and it's a borderline genre flick at that. Number one, Three Men and a Baby. Look, I love you, Leonard Nimoy, but what the hell? Number two, Fatal Attraction. Number three, Beverly Hills Cop 2. Number four, Good Morning Vietnam. Number five, ugh, Moonstruck. Number six, The Untouchables. Number seven, The Secret of My Success. I love The Secret of My Success. A lot of people don't remember that that's a remake, too. I... Did not know that. It's a remake, dork. It's a remake of, uh, of, is it a... Of The Secret of My Success. Of The like, Secret of My Success. Oh. I, think, I think it was the sixth. No, it was The Secret of My Success with a dollar sign S. So it's completely different. <laughs> and then number eight was Stakeout. Number nine was Lethal Weapon. And number ten is the only genre flick, Witches of Eastwick. So 1987 is a strange year in the fact that the genre was almost completely ignored at the box office, but yet was such a strong year in when you look back at just how many key sci-fi and horror movies there were. But then look at that top grossing films and you're like, but none of them were successful at the time. Isn't that weird? It really is. And the other thing that's weird, too, is that a lot of the movies that were the biggest moneymakers of that year were movies that, like, if now you were to mention them to people, like, if you were to talk about Three Men and a Baby, you'd be like, they're all forgettable. You know, it'd be like, oh, that, they're all forgettable. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, that, oh, that was the highest grossing film of that year. What? Besides you and me, who the hell even remembers The Secret of My Success or Moonstruck? (laughs) Well, I would say there are a lot of women that remember Moonstruck. I know, uh, you know, that, that is a very chick flick, for lack of a better word. But, uh, I personally, you know, I could, I would, would never have any reason to watch it again. I watched it enough, once was more than enough. But, uh, and like Stakeout, you know, Stakeout was, like is the stakeout even got a sequel like which everyone hated which everyone hated well it had Rosie in it i would say that uh, you know probably the, i uh, oddly enough the most memorable movie out of that top 10 i would probably say is lethal weapon and that was down at like number 9 you know Beverly Hills Cop 2 though no, no, no what i'm saying is that if you were to like if you were to not not you know going for quality or whatever i'm simply saying if you were to mention the movies, and it, like if you were to say, hey, what do you think was more successful, Lethal Weapon or Beverly Hills Cop 2? People would probably say Lethal Weapon because it's so much more ingrained in pop culture. And then they would be surprised that Beverly Hills Cop 2 beat it out by a wide margin. Do you think at the time we were seeing a shift away from sci-fi? Because like I said, all those, all the sci-fi and horror movies that, I mean, look at how many we talked about tonight that are key films. Why do you think they just didn't work in 1987? Clearly, it wasn't, well, Three Men and a Baby was clearly going to beat the hell out of RoboCop. You kind of look at it and go, how the hell did Three Men and a Baby beat the hell out of RoboCop? 
you know, the, the genres ebb and flow. Uh, we had uh, Star Wars, and then everybody was doing their Star Wars knockoffs, and that kind of went for a while, and now we went into, uh, I think this was more of the sequel wave, where, okay, Three and a Three Men and a Baby was big, so then we had Three Men and a Little Lady, and then we had Beverly Hills Cop 2, and then Beverly Hills Cop 3, and uh, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, and Stakeout 2. And so uh, this was really the setup for uh the, i think sequels was probably the next the next wave of things to uh to kind of usher through for the next few years so okay how would you sum up 1987 then in film was it a good year or was it one of those years that is better left to just move on to 1988 oh i think it's a legendary year i mean holy crap the the amount of movies that were in this year that are still celebrated today is that like as high watermarks now they maybe not they maybe weren't high grossing at the time but they've since gone on to just be legendary films that are still talked about that are still revered this is one of those rare years where you look back and you're like i cannot believe how much quality came out on that note where can we find cecil reveling in the fact that 1987 was such a good year you can find me over at escapistmagazine.com as well as goodbadflicks.com and goodbadflicks on Facebook and Twitter. You can find me at 1201beyond.com and we just redesigned the website. Also, if you guys are a Rift Tracks fan, if you go to 1201beyond.com backslash Rift Tracks and you buy your tracks through that link, then we'll get a little cut of it because we are now an official Rift Tracks affiliate. You can contact me, though, at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Have a good night. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. What's the matter with you? Nah. I'll get it the next time. I mean. Charlie! Beat the beat, the beat, you beat! The only thing hard is the smell of my feet. So listen, of course you might get this. So train the lizard or take a chair. Yeah. Damn. Come on, man, y'all. Watch the beat! I'm on your case, I'm in your face, I'm you in your bottom. Face. Toilet paper!
Yo, watch the beat. Yeah! I want your piece, I'm in your face, I can give you all the back and forth. Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.